Good morning. Good to be here. Speaking on my behalf. I can't speak on your behalf. I hope you're glad to be here as well. Uh, we are in 1 Corinthians. We've been working through 1 Corinthians for a while. We're in chapter 14, if you want to go ahead and open up there. Um, if you've been with us the last couple months, or really hopefully if you've been with us for any amount of time, you have noticed that we try to be clear. We're not interested in having a group of Christians who would just be spectators. Uh, that coming, coming to this place to worship or gathering with a missional community in a home or, or being on mission with the body of Christ in any, in any capacity, hopefully uh, it's clear that there's, there's no desire that we would just be consumers, that we would just show up to consume. Uh, but certainly, as we gather, we are edified. We are built up by, by our, the presence of our brothers and sisters and, and by the Spirit of God working through us and, and the manifestation of many gifts that we are encouraged and equipped for the work. So certainly there's some consuming happening, but being present together hopefully is never about being a spectator or a consumer, but instead we would be a, a covenant community joining together every member gifted by the Spirit to be participants in this mission. That's our hope. That's our aim. That's our desire to see. We, we seek it. We want every member to be aware of how you're gifted and, and see that you are a member of a body, a crucial member of a body, and we are together about this work. We are together about the mission of God. And and 1 Corinthians has helped us see that in various ways. And the vision series we went through this September, in September, um, has helped us see how we're shaped and, and, and designed for that. Um, but this chapter 14 in particular is, I think, a healthy reminder that this is a supernatural work. Uh, that we are indeed a supernatural community. The church has always existed as the church as a supernatural community. So that means we, brothers and sisters in Christ, are united supernaturally with every Christian who's ever been and who, who would ever come. We are all brothers and sisters on this mission to see our King exalted. We are children of the same Father, servants of the same Savior. We are gifted and united by the indwelling of the same Spirit. We're the church on this mission to see God glorified. I hope that we can, we can work to get our minds around something that's beyond what's natural. And as we're thinking about things that are unnatural or supernatural, that we would be more and more dependent on, on the Spirit. And we've, we've been reading this letter to a church in Corinth that is, to say the least, problematic. They are, uh, Jared calls it a dumpster fire. I think it's a good phrase because dumpsters are gross. If you light one on fire... It's really gross and dangerous and disgusting in every way. It smells just bad. Dumpster fire. Great illustration. He didn't create it, although I credit him. It's a great illustration. And Corinth is a dumpster fire of a church, yet they're present in Scripture as the people of God. There's some hope in there for us, whatever problems we have. It doesn't matter how difficult they are, how big they are, how crazy it may seem, we've got nothing on this dumpster fire church that the Apostle Paul is writing hopeful. He wouldn't be writing them if he wasn't hopeful that they would see the need for love and unity 
and, and see the presence of the Spirit among them, gifting every individual for this mission, that he would draw them again and again to one thing, exalting Christ above everything else, being humble in how we approach this, seeing clearly that we have a mission as a church. There's no doubt that we can apply this, this text, these truths to us and whatever we may face. And Paul isn't seeking in this last part of chapter 14, he's not seeking to, to limit the Spirit. He's not seeking to, to limit the freedom that we have in the Spirit, but instead give structure to it. So when we talk about order within the gathering, he's giving structure that will accentuate the purpose of these gifts. It'll, it'll accentuate the purpose of our gathering. So we are the people of God gathered together, gifted by the Spirit, and we are to have unity. We've talked about unity. We, we are to have love. We've talked about love, and, and we are to have order. And so we're going to talk about order today in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to start in verse 26, and we're going to finish out the chapter. As usual, when I preach, I'm going to read a little and then stop and have some explanation. Last week, there was a lot on the front end before we got to the text. This week, I'm putting more on the back end, so just to prepare you mentally for whatever you're ready for. Verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. That's what Scott just told us before we worshiped. Whatever you're coming with, whatever you have, we have lessons that are taught. We have, we have songs to sing. There may be tongues and interpretation and, and prophecy. All these things that we may gather together to, to witness or to experience or to participate in are for the purpose of building up the church. So we gather to be equipped and encouraged to be built up by truth because there's a mission. We want to see God glorified. So don't get lost in the doing and miss the point. Consider all that we've covered. There's there's a lot going on here, but there's love and there's unity and there's order. There's a need for order. Verse 27. So as order as, as far as it concerns tongues. Verse 27. If any speak in a tongue... Let there be only two or three, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So just to summarize, if it's going to happen, if tongues are going to happen, two or three at most, and they take turns, and then there must be interpretation. Otherwise, you are to keep silent. So We've not yet defined interpretation of tongues. Last week we went over tongues and prophecy, so if you missed that, I don't know you're just in the clouds right now because we don't have time to get into it. We podcast everything. Go back, listen. But interpretations of tongues is possibly the most neglected spiritual gift in the church. Without it, though, there's no healthy way to have tongues in a worship gathering. There must be an interpretation. So definition on the screen, it's a gift, a spirit-empowered ability to translate public utterance of tongues into a language of the hearers or the congregants. So it's a gift given to someone by the Spirit to hear the tongue and be able to interpret the tongue. Now this would naturally include some human error because even translating another language includes error. Any gift that we have from the Spirit, we have the freedom to use it in our humanness. And so there's error involved. There's brokenness involved. Sometimes when you're hospitable, gift of the Spirit, you do so for selfish gain. Sometimes when you're teaching, a gift of the Spirit, you do so for 
to be on a platform or to be elevated, and you're tempted to be arrogant in those ways. So in every gift of the Spirit, there's room for human error. And the content of an interpretation of tongues, though, should be done in such a way that the church hears it and can say amen. That's back to verse 16 that we covered last week. There needs to be this ability to understand so that we can say amen and be edified by it. So we have to reference what we know about tongues in order to talk about interpretation. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, we see that tongues in that context were about the mighty works of God. The people say they hear the mighty works of God. And in Corinthians, tongues are about an expression of prayer and praise and thanksgiving in an unknown language to both the speaker and the hearer. There is this praise of God. It's directed at God, towards God in prayer and in praise and in thanksgiving. It's evident in this text that we went through last week. So it's reasonable that an interpretation of tongues should therefore be, like prophecy, it should be considered in light of the truth of Scripture, but unlike prophecy, which is a horizontal expression, tongues is a vertical one. So the interpretation should express praise to God, prayer to God, thanksgiving to God, directed vertically to God. Any interpretation you hear of tongues should therefore be an expression of praise and prayer and thanksgiving to God. To recap, if you have the gift of tongues, if you have the gift to interpret tongues, in the gathering, you should be ready, two, three tops, one at a time, and you should be aware of whether or not there's an interpreter in the room. So if you can interpret tongues, you need to get together with the tongues people. You need to know you're there. Or perhaps somehow by the Spirit, you just know There's an interpretation available for this. Otherwise, it's clear you're to keep silent. Now, I don't know what context everyone comes out of, what background you were raised in, or what you know about the way the Spirit works, but order is necessary, and that's evident here in this passage. So, it's as straightforward as it it is. I can't make it any, any different. So if you know of tongues and interpretation happening outside of this order, I would say with confidence it's unbiblical. Now, as for the gift of prophecy, verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the, spirit of, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So similar instruction here, two or three total, one at a time. And the others here, others is everyone but the speaker, is to weigh in on what is said. So there's no way around the words all. So all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. So this includes everyone present. And everyone's to weigh it, according to what we talked about last week, according to Scripture, Prophecy is a mixture of divine revelation and human interpretation and application. So there's all this stuff going on. What does the Bible say about what was just said? And is it glorifying God? Is it edifying the church? So we're to analyze it in those ways, rejecting what is wrong, accepting what is right. The Soma Church Planning Network, our, our family of churches, gives some very helpful instruction as far as this is concerned. Prophecy should never be directive, corrective, or predictive. Those are guardrails to help us. If it's directive, corrective, or predictive, then it's unbiblical. It, it shouldn't be fortune-telling. 
It should be encouragement. It should be edification. It should be something to build up the church to the glory of God. Now, interestingly, though we're talking about order, verse 30 seems to indicate if someone's prophesying and another person gets a word, they can just interrupt. And when they do, the person prophesying is to be silent. It seems like we're missing some order here. Or if somebody just has something against the person prophesying, I've got a word, sit down. I don't really know how that works out, honestly. But we do know it's clear that we, there's to be a degree of trusting the Holy Spirit. Anytime we gather, who are we really trusting? Even if you trust the leadership of the church, who are we really trusting? We're trusting the Spirit who works out all things for our good. And verse 31 gives us clear purpose. All may learn and be encouraged. So what are we after? We're after everyone learning and being encouraged. Now it's understood that those who have a word are accountable to the church, but also in verse 32, they're they're accountable to the other prophets in the room, which is why they're they're to be silent because they're, they're being held accountable. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So when, when Paul writes, it's understood there's love. There's, there's lo- there must be love. How, are we to, how do they know we're, to follow, we're following Jesus? How are they knowing we're disciples? Well, we love one another. We do everything in love, which is why you wouldn't interrupt someone just because you don't like them. We love each other. We encourage one another. We're seeking unity and edification and peace. So it frames everything we have and everything we know about order of service is framed by unity and love and edification and peace. And God is a God of peace. And that that means he brings order to chaos, but it also means he brings harmony instead of hierarchy. There is a harmony among us because we have a God of peace, not looking at one person as if they're higher than another because of their gifts. He maintains conciliation, knowing the ones who prophesy aren't about themselves. Knowing the ones who prophesy can't be about pride. They must be about God. And so there's this check of humility because we have a God of peace. Now, for the roles of women. As in all the churches of the saints, that belongs to verse 33, but these numbers are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. So in Greek, it belongs to verse 34. That's why I chopped it in half, in case you're concerned. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be submissive, or should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. All right, that's pretty self-explanatory, so let's go to verse 36. All right. (laughs) You guys were like, what is he going to say about this? All right, what he says is clear. However, why he says it and the application of it isn't all that clear. In fact, it's somewhat ambiguous when we try to harmonize it with chapter 11, verse 5, that says women prophesy, and it gives instruction for how women should prophesy. And when we look at verse 31 here, when all present are participating, certainly there's women present. So seeking harmony, surely he cannot mean women are to always be silent in every situation, But there needs to be some work done to discover why exactly we don't prescribe this passage verbatim. So clearly women that are part of the Crossing Church aren't forbidden to speak. So are we outside of 
what Scripture calls us to, or do we perhaps need to do some work? If you read 10 different commentaries on this passage, you will find 10 different answers. I wish I was exaggerating, but I'm not. At least 10 different explanations of what's going on here. Um, And some, very few, but some say women are to be silent and submissive in in our context and across the the globe and throughout history. That's how they would apply that. Uh, And and there's really, there's there's not a lot of room for that once you understand uh, the context of the passage and what Paul's communicating overall. It seems to be added in. So some would even say that passage was added in later by scribes. That's why it doesn't seem to fit. Well, that's not the case because even when it's, even when it's added to the end of the chapter, which in some manuscripts it is, it's still there as far back as we can see. No one added that later. So there needs to be some work. No one is neutral about this, whether it's because of personal or denominational or experiential or hermeneutical agendas, we come into this with biases. And so working to not be biased, I'm going to give you three reasonings for why we don't believe this is saying women aren't allowed to speak. These are three reasonings that I think are the strongest. Uh, So it could be that Paul is addressing specific cultural problems with the women in Corinth who are disrupting the worship gathering with various questions in abundance. It's causing it to go on. It's causing it to be disorderly. And he's working right now to bring order to the gathering. So he offers this solution that women are to be silent. And if they have questions, let them ask their husbands later on. I think that this is possible. Um, but also uh, it, it speaks to this use of the word law, except for it wouldn't be referring to God's law. It'd be referring to a general law of a patriarchal system um, for which women weren't to speak in this sort of way. Now, this would affect edification, certainly, but also even, even if systems are broken, it, with, with any objectification or marginalization or oppression of women that certainly existed in the patriarchal society that was the Greco-Roman world, um, there wouldn't be a, a reasonable way to say we're going to war against that in the gathering of the church by letting women do whatever they want. So it, it, there has to be some balance in how do we work against these things. So even if it was culturally true that that was what was going on, it would kind of make sense that Paul would say, here's a solution. Just wait till later and ask these questions. So that's, that's a reasonable, um, reasonable argument. I don't necessarily prescribe to that one, but it's it's possible. The second one is that Paul is limiting women not in public prophecy um, or in speaking in general, but in the evaluation, specifically the evaluation of the prophets that we just talked about. So most scholars, especially those with whom we typically agree on other topics, land on this point, that it's a contextual limitation on the prescribed silence that we've already seen twice in this passage. It says, Verse 28, those who interpret tongues are to be, or those who speak in tongues are to be silent if there's no interpreter. And in verse 30, those who are prophesying and interrupted are to be silent if they if someone else has a word. And then again, women are to be silent. So it's there's a limitation to what the silence is prescribed to, and, and scholars would argue that that limitation is on specifically evaluating the prophets. Now, this is in harmony with everything else Paul says. Uh, in, in all of his other letters, it works with everything that he believes about women. In fact, Paul would be considered somewhat um, passionately anti-patriarchal system because he often writes about women and their involvement in the church and in ministry. Um, but there's no, there's no specific instruction here 
um, that allows women to have authority over men, which would be in accordance to 1 Timothy 2.12. And then also there's no affront to the, the role of a woman in general, the role of a man in general. Now, this is authority submission dynamic that we talked about in chapter 11 that we're not going to get into here. Um, I do. I kind of want to because there are some things that need to be explained there. But I want to strongly encourage you to go back and listen to chapter 11 sermon on that authority submission dynamic between the role of a man and the role of a woman because it applies here. Um, but right now we're working to show why women are free uh, to speak. So therefore, according to all of that, Paul explains According to the law of God, which doesn't mean women are silent all the time, but instead they're not to be in the role of a man. Speaking with headship in the worship gathering or in the home, they're to be submissive to their husbands. Gosh, I really want to explain submission authority. We're not going to. Trusting the Spirit. Option three. It's kind of a combination of those two. Paul is specifically prohibiting women from interrogating another woman's man. All right. So there is, this, there is this need for there to be cultural a ways of following the culture to not be disruptive and, and the witness of the church. And there is this biblical need to, to be in the role of a woman and the role of a man. And specifically, as those come together, he's prohibiting women from interrogating the prophecy of another woman's man. Does that make sense? So the reason this is... a, a a possible explanation is because there's this desire to learn that's in there. It says they desire to learn. They're asking questions because they want to learn, which means they weren't seeking to contribute something necessarily, but rather ask questions that they could be edified, that they could understand and grow and learn. And considering that it's shameful, it says it's shameful for a woman to speak. So culturally, it would be a shame for their husband because they're asking another man question instead of their own husband. And it would be shameful for a woman in that culture to speak to any man in a public setting because that's how the Greco-Roman world worked. And so I think these, these three options are all possible. Whichever one you want to go with, they all have the same end result. Women are free to speak. Congratulations. As if you needed a man's permission, right? Feel me? All right. Now, I love thinking and reasoning and researching and having answers. And if I'm pressed on most things, I could give you an answer. But I think in practice, the relationship we have to God informing and transforming us so that it has an effect on the relationships we have with others is what's most pressing. It's most important. It's more important than any definitive dogmatic doctrine that we could have about who women are and what they do. I think with something so contentious and secondary that we need to have a loose grip. So please loosen your grip on certain doctrinal issues. Hold them, but hold them open-handed because we're talking about conflict between brothers and sisters. We're talking about disagreement that would divide the church. We're to, we're to have right faith and right love long before we have right knowledge. So let knowledge be important, but let's have right faith and let's have right love that the church would be edified. So I say that because I, I go through the explanation because it's needed, but it's not dogmatic. That's why I gave you three options. We're not taking a firm stance, 
but I think it's necessary that we don't, we don't de- like deflect. I don't, I don't, I want to be clear. This applies to everything I'm saying. I want to be really clear. There's no doubt been an oppression and a marginalization of women throughout history, including within the church. Women have been oppressed and are currently being oppressed in many ways within the church. And we will fight oppression in every way, according to scripture, to see the church flourish, every member of the church flourish, that we could be healthy, that we could be edified to the glory of God. We're going to war against it because no doubt it grieves the heart of our God. It should grieve us. And as a reaction, some have thrown out the baby of of divinely ordained gender roles with the bathwater of oppression. And we're not going to do that. The roles are biblical, they're necessary, they're important. However, it's most vital, perhaps in our current cultural context than ever before, that the church take seriously the oppressed, the marginalized women so that the whole church can be edified and the Lord can be glorified, that the lost would be saved. The lost who, by the way, by common grace, seem to care more about this than many so-called Christians. So Paul is radically positive as it concerns the role of women, and we will be as well. And and we're not going to ignore God's ordained gender roles, but we're also going to be as pro-woman as the Bible. All right. Verse 36, let me step down off the soapbox. Verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the ones, or the only ones it has reached? So this is sarcastic, rhetorical questioning that Paul is drawing attention to his, his um, apostolic authority. He says, are you the one who heard the word of God? Not a word from God, but are you the ones who have the word of God? Are you the only ones that preach? Is it only applying to you? Uh, and he's saying, look, I'm speaking on behalf of God. Listen to me. Verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a, that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So if you know the things of the Lord, then you'll know this is from God. If you don't recognize this authority that Paul has, he's saying, or as Wayne Grudem would call it, a divine curse. If you don't recognize this, then you will not be recognized by God. He's reminding you of his authority and emphasizing it because this is not a matter of opinion. Nothing he said in this chapter or the chapter before or the chapter before or the chapter before. We could keep going, but we're not going to because that goes back to 11 when he's talking about the order of, and, and the makeup of a gathered body. Nothing here is a matter of Paul's opinion, but in fact, it is a command of God. So back to the question being addressed here, verse 39. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Footnote, since we just went on a a bit of a rant about women, brothers here can be translated brothers and sisters. In fact, if you're reading the Christian Standard Bible, it is translated that way. If you have an ESV or, or possibly others, there's a footnote at the bottom that says brothers and sisters. Check it out. Don't take my word for it. It, any, anytime you read brothers in scripture, it's just a way of saying it. Same for man. It's just a way of saying people. It makes sense. But I just want to make sure you're included. You know you're a part of this. Brothers and sisters earnestly desire to prophesy. 
So that's men and women earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Tongues and prophecy are not the focus here of Paul's instruction because they're the most important or the most spiritual gift. They're the focus because they're most susceptible to being abused and and puffing up uh, the speaker in pride. And Paul is squashing the pride. His answer is not, his answer to the abuse of these things in Corinth is not disuse. But he emphasizes proper use, order, unity, love. And we should earnestly desire them. Verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. Why? Because we have a job to do. We've been given a task. We've been commissioned on a mission to make Christ known. Why Why is all of this important? Because the gospel needs to be heard. The gospel is our hope, the truth, the good news needs to be proclaimed. And if we are not healthy, we are not strong, if every member is not strong, utilizing the gift of the Spirit for the edification of the church, that we would be encouraged and equipped to bring this gospel forth, then we're failing. It's important because the Lord is to be glorified and a healthy church brings glory to God. And that's where Paul ends, but we're not done. So if you disengage, come back. Listen, there's no verse 41 here that gives caution and, and warnings of the danger. He doesn't then go into this prolific explanation of how to use caution in using these gifts so that we don't go off the rails and get crazy. There's no need for it because he said everything that needed to be said. In fact, the command is most clear, don't forbid it. And again, he writes to the Thessalonians against the rejection of these things in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 and 20 through 22. Do not quench, quench the spirit. Do not despise, reject, hold in contempt. Do not despise prophecy, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So I wonder, when I read that, why would we despise prophecy? Perhaps because it's foreign and weird and uncomfortable. Or maybe we just don't like the word that we heard. I don't like it. No more to that. Cut it off. I have a word. Sit down. But maybe it's just because we could easily grow frustrated with the abuses. I think that's probably most likely for the church today. We've grown frustrated with the abuses of these gifts of the Spirit, so we've despised them. We've rejected them. We've held them in contempt. We've dismissed them. But instead of rejection, we're told to test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from what is evil. So we must know the Word of God in order to compare these things to the Word of God. But also, we're not to be afraid and quench the Spirit. In fact, Paul writes about this to Timothy, who's leading a people in these things. In 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, he says, For this reason, I remind you. He's, he's been thinking on the faith of Timothy, and then he comes to this point. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of my hands. So he's talking about the Spirit of God being present with the people through this apostolic blessing of laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
So I say this instead of giving a warning against these things. I say this because I don't think the crossing church is in danger of going off the rails anytime soon. I think instead there are some here who are gifted by God in these ways. And we have perhaps quenched the spirit. I think it's likely there are some who are gifted by God in these ways that we would consider more charismatic or supernatural. And we are afraid I think it not only likely, I think it's probable that there are some who are gifted here and are not living in light of these gifts. Maybe you know, maybe you don't know. Maybe we all need to seek these gifts like Paul's telling us to. But I think that if that is the case, our body isn't working properly. In fact, we're weaker. Think of it literally. If a part of your body wasn't working properly, you'd feel a kind of way about it. You'd want to do something about it. You wouldn't just be cool with that, right? A weaker body is weaker because members are weak or lacking. So it's my hope that we would be so determined to pursue the gifts of the Spirit that they would free us from this this crippling of skepticism, but also guard us from foolishness of being gullible and believing anything We'd be so eager for the Spirit that we would be united, full of love and caring for one another and trusting the work of the Spirit that we would see revival, that we would see the Spirit working through us and in us in ways that would have the gospel proclaimed from the mouths of the crossing church, that the gospel would be demonstrated from the hands and the feet of the crossing church, that God would be glorified and the lost would be saved and we would be strengthened and encouraged because we believe the Bible. And he does give warning. And that warning comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. If I speak in tongues of men and, and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. The warning is, you could be a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong, or nothing, and still have these gifts if you don't have love. So somehow it always comes back to Jesus giving his life up in this ultimate sacrificial love so that we would be a people marked by love, gifted by the Spirit of God. So Jesus walked in love. He was compassionate. He cared for the marginalized. He had power to do supernatural things because of the Spirit of God working through him. He gave up his life that we could be brought back to our Father. And then the Spirit came and filled his church that we would continue to be the very presence of love in the world, filled with the Spirit working through supernatural means to bring the gospel to the world, that the the church would be built up, that that the lost would be saved, and that our God would be glorified. It's incredible how simple it is. Only we don't believe it. It's so difficult for us to believe supernatural things, yet we'll believe we're saved, the supernatural work of the Spirit, though many would try and break that down to this this physical, logical decision being made, when how could we even know the goodness of God if not for him opening our eyes? This is not a debate about doctrine because I don't want to get into that. 
I want to see rightly who is our sovereign, powerful, wonderful God, our, the Savior of the world. How has he worked so that we could continue this mission? It seems so clear to me that the Spirit dwells in us and manifests himself through us that we could be Christ to the world. And Jesus has done everything necessary that we could be Christ to the world. And I think we're safe to trust him. I think we're safe to read his word and obey him. And it's, it seems most clear that the reason we don't, the reason we don't see supernatural power of the spirit working through us is because we don't live lives that require it. We rarely, if ever, take the risk of, of making sacrifices that would put us in a position to be dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we want to maintain our lives. We want to maintain control because it feels safe there. When there's no safer place for you than in the hands of God. There's no safer place for you than you, than you to abandon yourself and your control. To lay down everything in the hands of God that we would fully trust him. It's almost like we can taste it. We can almost see it. We're almost there feeling the weight lifted, resting in the arms of our Savior. We're almost there, but we want to pull back just a little bit so I can feel safe in my hands. And so I'm asking you, because that's all I, all I can do, take a breath and rest. Because our Savior has done everything necessary, and I think it's even more true to say, if we rest in him, then we would be guarded from going off the rails. That it's when we try to lean into this and still control it, that things go crazy because it's man-centered. There are no doubt, let me, let me be clear because I haven't clearly said this, there's no doubt there are abuses and mockeries of these gifts abundant across the globe and really sparked off in the early 1900s by a heretical movement of spiritual people who were very man-centered in a lot of ways. Out of that flowed all kinds of heresies, like, like a prosperity gospel that's all about what I can gain in this physical life instead of rightly seeing our prosperity is in eternity with God when we're freed from all things that hold us down. Surely there's blessings here and now, but all blessings from God are to be used to bless God in return. So we give and we give and we give. We receive and we give, not because we give, but because our God is gracious and merciful and he's good and he gives good gifts. So certainly there's a mockery. Certainly there's heresy involved in all of this. And this, it's, it's this pursuit of ecstasy. It's a pursuit of emotionalism that we are not going to venture off into because it's man-centered and we are Christ-centered. And there's also, no doubt, some demonic activity involved in a man-centered pursuit of spiritual highs. It's, it's certainly true. There's, there's demons involved in the church. But let me clarify what I've said. There's demons involved in the church. There's demonic activity in all these weird ways that seem foreign to many here. But there's certainly demonic activity within the Southern Baptist Church. And there's demonic activity within any, any conservative denomination who doesn't believe in spiritual gifts of these kind. It just looks a lot more like apathy and indifference and, and fear of supernatural things. So let's just all agree we're not going to let Satan win in holding us back and quenching the spirit because we have a mission. 
The tendency of our human nature is to doubt these foreign things, is to be skeptical of stuff we just don't understand. In fact, we make fun of it, and I've, I've been a part of it, and I've heard it, and, and there's a shaming involved in mocking spiritual gifts of that kind. And so much so that that, in fact, quenches the Spirit. Those here who know you're gifted by God in this way may be hesitant to share that with a brother or sister, fear of rejection, fear of being shamed. But in doing so, we maintain the suspicion that restricts us from experiencing all that God has for us. So a better route, here's where we're coming to, a better route for the Crossing Church would be take a position of reverence. It's foreign, it's mysterious to many, but let's take a position of reverence and long for what is mysterious. Earnestly desire, as Paul would say, so that the presence and power of the Spirit of God can be here in the Crossing Church and work through us. And there's no doubt a lot to work through as we go and and there's going to be some ways in which we apply some of the order to some of this. And, and honestly, we haven't figured out all the ways in which this is rightly present in the gathering of God's people. But we're committed to do so because we see the value of it. And we see the command in Scripture to, to pursue it. So we're going to do that so that we can be obedient. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, This is how one should regard us, the people of God, as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. So what I'm proposing is that we stop being people who try our hardest to steward right answers and perfect doctrine, and that we would instead be stewards of the mysteries of God. We don't have all the answers. We have some mystery, but let's do well to steward that. We've got work to do. But let's consider the mystery. Are we truly connected to Christ? There's mystery. Are we the body of Christ, filled with the Spirit of God? Does the Spirit indwell in us? There's mystery here. At times we believe it, at times we don't. At times we see it, at times we don't. At times I feel totally free to trust the grace of God and, and have no fears in life. There are moments I, I get these glimpses of eternity. And the work of the church is to pull eternity towards us, is to pull the kingdom of God here, to do this work that we would create space for, for eternity, freedom from sin, the, the presence and the brightness of our God to shine forth in this world. We could create environments for that, that we could be the people of God, that where we go, we would be a city on a hill shining light into darkness. That people could see Jesus when they look at us. That they would know we're with him because we love each other. They would know we're with him because we strike down those who would try and rise up and oppress. And those who would take from the poor, we would give to the poor. Those who would neglect the gifts of the Spirit, we would desire the gifts of the Spirit. To see God glorified. So consider the mystery Think of this unapproachable God of the Old Testament, the holies of holy God, who sinful men come into his presence and die. Think of that God and consider Christ has done a work to make us whole, to make us righteous, so that this holy of holies God could dwell in us. It's crazy. But it's true according to the word of God. So in light of all of this, Ephesians 3 Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. 
To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, there's such great mystery in when we consider who you are. When we consider the ways your spirit moves and works and, and we feel this desire for it, but, but all these emotions are conflicted and that so often we're afraid and so often we're confused and so often we doubt and we're skeptical, but help us. Let us feel the freedom to say we just don't know everything. No doubt we should be faithful to pursue right knowledge and understanding, but help us to trust your spirit to bring that. That we would, we would commit ourselves to the making of disciples for your glory. That we would commit ourselves to the proclamation of gospel truth. That we would see whatever is present, whatever gifts we have, that there's a need for order, that there's a need for unity, and, and above all, there's a need for love. And so as we love one another, and as we seek to honor you in, in all that we are, I pray that you would be worshipped here today and in us and through us as we go forth as your people on mission. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.